Welcome to Food For Real, the show that helps you learn about real food first. I'm your host, Sherry, nutritional therapy practitioner, and I'm here to show you how there is a better way to live, feel, and eat every single day. Before we get started, I welcome you to follow along on all the socials at Sherry Sabah Health. And P.S., I do not provide medical advice here. I'm just sharing what I have learned and used in my own health journey in the hopes that it can benefit you too. All right, let's get started. Welcome back to episode six of Food For Real. Thank you for being here. I'm so happy to do this podcast episode and really all of the episodes. I think that podcasting is really my thing, so this is exciting. Anywho, today we're going to be talking about diabetes. Not necessarily diabetes in the sense that if you have diabetes, do this or that, but talking about blood sugar regulation. So it's a little bit more of a holistic approach, a foundational type of approach where our blood sugar can, we can benefit from regulating our blood sugar whether we have diabetes or not. Whether you've ever been diagnosed or told that you have prediabetes or never at all, there are ways that we can feel better, that we can manage our meals better, you know, that we can make sure that we have more energy, sleep better, have less stress by regulating our blood sugar. And I really like to start with a food first approach. So in this episode, you're going to hear me go through my top five ways to manage and even improve your blood sugars. First of all, starting with protein, snacking. Number two, we're going to talk a little bit about fiber. So specifically from plants, not Cheerios. Cheerios do not lower cholesterol, nor do anything good for blood sugar. Number three, we're going to talk a little bit about sleep. Number four, stress. And number five, movement. So let's get into this episode. I hope you enjoy. Hello again. So I think I found my new favorite spot to record my podcast episodes, and that would be on my couch in my living room looking out the window at the sunshine. (laughs) You know, if you ever have a favorite spot in your house, it's just you know, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's just your favorite place to sit. And it's much warmer than my basement office. I can say that. So today we're talking about blood sugar. But first I wanted to really talk, before we get into talking about ways that you can manage and even improve your blood sugar, I really want to talk about what that is in the first place. A lot of times people may have never heard of insulin resistance. And if you have, good, I'm glad. Keep learning. But insulin resistance is something that can build up over time. It's like the precursor to prediabetes and diabetes mellitus, which is like the fancy medical term. There's also gestational diabetes, which is a whole nother topic in itself, but gestational diabetes also carries with it insulin resistance, secondary to pregnancy, and the related hormones and bodily changes. So today I wasn't gonna focus on gestational, but talk about insulin resistance and blood sugar management in general. Um, So I want you to know like insulin resistance, you can have this for years and years and years, like a decade or more before blood sugars ever even, before high blood sugars ever even found or before a screening for high blood sugar. And the way that this happens is that, you know, if you were a kid and you remember like we should be snacking or eating every two to three hours, like that God awful advice that like I just despise because I learn better, but this frequent snacking and frequent consumption of like carbohydrates, starchy carbs. So think things like, you know, um, bread, rice, pasta, cereal, cereal bars, granola bars, things with a lot of added sugar in them, Pop-Tarts, those are like some of the worst offenders, chips, Cheetos, Cheez-Its, whatever. So the frequent consumption of those things and eating like every couple of hours, like every two hours or so, or one to two hours, that prompts an in, a 
release of insulin from our pancreas. And that's not the problem. The problem is that repeatedly doing this, repeatedly snacking on things that prompt a large release of insulin from our pancreas results in a lot of insulin um, floating around our bloodstream. And this insulin is trying to hurry up and let the glucose into the cell to be either used or stored for fat, which mostly gets stored around the midline of our body. And this excessive amount of insulin in excess for a prolonged period of time, so think years, you know, five, six, seven, ten years, it's obviously different for everybody, but this prolonged exposure of excessive insulin for a long time can lead to the resistance of our cells allowing this insulin to allow the glucose into the cell. So now what we have is this glucose backs up in the bloodstream, but we still have this problem of excessive insulin floating around in the blood. So we have excessive insulin, and as a result, we have excessive blood glucose as well. And then we keep on snacking and snacking and snacking on you know, added sugar, processed carbohydrates of all kind, you know, you snack, you put some in your mouth every one to two hours, and here we go. We're just adding fuel to the fire of insulin resistance. And eventually, so our bodies are experts, right? Our bodies are very good at compensating. Western medicine would have you believe that there is something innately wrong with your body no matter what. But our bodies are very smart and know exactly what to do. However, when our bodies can no longer compensate, now... Eventually, we may start having these symptoms of prediabetes, of actual diabetes. We may have more than just subtle symptoms. So think of like getting up to pee every one to two hours, running to the bathroom nonstop despite not drinking water. Um, What else? Frequent hunger, sugar cravings, sweet tooth, being hangry, waking up with no appetite. Oh my God, so many things. If you look it up, there's probably hundreds of different symptoms of prediabetes and diabetes. So now that the body can no longer compensate, now we're in that dangerous level of blood sugars are going high and we don't want them to go any higher. But let's say, for example, they do go higher. So now, because these symptoms of prediabetes can be subtle, we're on this dangerous pathway of like, even higher blood sugars. You continue to eat a lot of starchy carbohydrates, continue to frequently snack, avoid protein like the plague, eat no fat. You know, you're really stressed out. You're not sleeping well. You know, you don't exercise at all. There's no real protein and fiber in your diet. It's just like cereal, sandwiches, pasta, rice, bread, you know, very little nutritious, real whole food. So continuing on down this path, now there's type 2 diabetes present or occurring or in the process of occurring. Now with type 2 diabetes, it's even more serious. It's not just insulin resistance. It's not just prediabetes. Now it's actual type 2 diabetes where there are excessively high blood sugars. So that being a fasting glucose of, I believe it's 130, 140 or above. So fasting means you haven't eaten in the past eight hours plus. Now, this is going to be this is going to be relative depending on age, depending on gender. So there is a little bit of a curve here. So I don't want to give exact numbers because this is not like the end all be all. And the American Diabetes Association, which I'm not exactly a fan of, changes their um, guidelines every so often. So anywho, full blown diabetes. Now it's worse than insulin resistance. We have excessive insulin. We have excessive glucose, and now. 
because of this excessive glucose, there's damage to the arteries, there's damage to the blood vessels, there's damage to the eyes, the kidneys, the heart. There's so many things going on in our body that we don't want. But at the same time, traditional Western medicine would have you believe that once you have type 2 diabetes, that's like the end of the road for you. That's like, it's too bad. You're shut out of luck. There's nothing you can do. You can take medicine and take insulin for the rest of your life. Take insulin. Wait a minute. <laughs> you already have insulin resistance, so now you want to add even more fuel to that fire and continue to make things worse? Wrong answer. So there's medications. You know, I know that there's like a big... It is important to get the glucose down, but it is also important to address the root cause of these problems. And for some people, insulin and medications of various kind, there's many different types of diabetes medications. It's not just insulin I'm talking about, but that may be you know, the initial pathway. That may be the thing that you need to jumpstart like managing your blood sugars better or to start getting them under better control. At the same time, also making... Um, foundational changes so specifically like your food your stress levels your exercise your sleep and I really strongly believe in a food first type of approach so I hope this makes sense like the insulin resistance is one thing that I feel like is much less commonly talked about and it's actually a blood test like your doctor can actually order a fasting insulin level on you if your fasting glucose is normal that way they can actually tell if insulin resistance is getting started although i kind of feel like a lot of general practitioners may not really buy into the idea of insulin resistance just yet but i feel like as it gains more and more um, traction from the functional medicine community i feel like western medicine may eventually get on board with like insulin resistance and appropriate screening not to freak anyone out, but there are a couple ways that you can know if you're insulin resistant. And one of them, I think the biggest one, both in males and females, is having a very large abdomen or obesity in general. There's also what's called a waist to height circumference, which is worthwhile looking up and measuring if you're interested in doing so. Also things like skin tags, if you've ever had skin tags, specifically like the underarms and around the neck, that can be a telltale sign of insulin resistance. If you're having significant difficulty losing weight despite doing all the things, trying to eat healthy, so on and so forth, that can really show us insulin resistance could be present. Um, there are a few other things, more so in females and males. I feel like it might be more common in females from what I've read about in the past, but I, don't quote me on that. But in females, so things like the absence of menstruation. So if you're not getting your menstrual cycle on time every single month, that can be a little bit of a concern there that might prompt like a worthwhile let's say a fasting glucose and a fasting insulin level um what else oh pcos is heavily associated with insulin resistance and a lot of times women will be prescribed metformin a medication that helps the muscles to become more um more open and receptive to receiving glucose so it essentially increases your insulin sensitivity is what that's called so pcos is an issue um even infertility, that may be worthwhile to look at both blood sugar and thyroid hormones specifically. Um, in men, insulin resistance can also look like things like erectile dysfunction and frequent fatigue, um, which also has to do with their testosterone levels. So even checking like testosterone, fasting insulin, fasting glucose may be worthwhile if you are a male who is concerned that they may be insulin resistant. 
Okay, so now that we talked about what insulin resistance is and a little bit about diabetes and um, prediabetes, I wanna talk about some five ways that we can manage or even improve blood sugar. So really, I call these like a top five ways, but really these are just a handful of things. There are many, many, many ways to go about managing blood sugar in a different way, in a way that suits you and helps you feel your best. I always like to say that like there is no only way, there's multiple ways, we just have to be willing to see them and have to be willing to learn, right? And I feel like in the case of managing blood sugar, it's a matter of really taking radical responsibility for yourself. I feel that so much of our health and well-being in general is up to us. It's not the responsibility of like our family doctor, it's not the responsibility of our parents or spouses, whatever, it's our responsibility. So anywho, let me get off my soapbox. <laughs> okay, so my top five ways to manage and even improve blood sugar. Number one is a food first approach. So number one, specifically, and probably the most obvious if you didn't already think of this, is to decrease the sugary stuff, decrease the processed carbs, the snack cakes, the potato chips, decrease the manufactured Franken foods that have zero nutrition in them whatsoever, right? Um, aiming for adequate protein specifically. I know that like I like to harp on protein a lot, especially like on the podcast and on social media, but I cannot emphasize it enough. Protein is very, very, very important for so many of our bodily processes. And without enough, we'll find ourselves eating and eating and eating and eating, eating, not able to stop snacking. And I recently learned, so this I thought was really interesting. I recently learned about the protein leverage hypothesis. So you can even go look this up if you want to learn more. There's tons of like articles and information online about it. And what this specifically states is that we are going to eat and eat and eat and eat until our protein requirements are met. So what does that mean? So we're going to want to eat that entire bag of chips because our body is looking for enough protein. Or say we just had like a carb-heavy breakfast with like a bagel and coffee. There's virtually no protein, maybe one to two grams at the most. And I think that's being generous in a bagel with cream cheese. But we're going to eat and eat and eat and eat and eat until our protein requirements are met. So in that case, you're snacking all day long. You're constantly hungry. You're never full. You're never satiated. It's always like food on my mind, food on my mind. I need to eat something. So not only is the most obvious approach decreasing the sugar, decreasing the processed carbohydrate items, but increasing high quality animal-based protein. And I specifically say it like that because the plant-based protein, while that is an option for some people who choose to eat vegetarian and vegan diets, there's not as nearly, it's not as bioavailable to our human bodies as animal protein is. And I know that there's like a ton of reasons to go with a vegetarian or a vegan diet but I can also say that you may find that you actually feel significantly better by prioritizing high quality animal protein. So think of like steak, eggs, chicken, turkey, beef, what you know, whatever it is that you like, you know, and it doesn't have to be significant amounts. But I do recommend aiming for enough protein to satisfy your daily requirements, which is gonna be different for everybody. Ideally, you wanna aim for approximately one gram of protein per um, kilogram of ideal body weight. So this is something to kind of toy around with, you know, see if like 60 grams, 80, 110, you know, kind of toy around with that and see how you do. But ideally you want to 
not snack. You don't want to put food in your mouth all day long. You want to eat to stay tidy. So what I like to call that is volume eating. So I prioritize protein and healthy fats at every single meal, and I eat to stay tidy, which means that if I'm full, I don't force myself to eat more, but if I'm still hungry, I'll cook another egg or add another like couple slices of apple or you know something into my meal so that I'm full and satiated for a good four to six hours. And that is the ideal number. That's kind of like the sweet spot as far as meals go. We want to be full for four to six hours. That gives our bodies plenty of time to fully digest. Oh my God, I'm so sorry about the dogs. <laughs> that gives our bodies plenty of time to fully digest what we just ate and to go through the process of autophagy, which means like the turnover of dead and decaying cells within our gut. So the turnover and detox of those cells so that when we're ready to eat again or when we actually really get hungry again, not an hour later, we are ready to again go through the process of digestion and the related detoxification processes that go with it. So along with protein, I also want to take a mention that healthy fats are very, very, very vital for adequate hormone production. So specifically our sex hormones. So men and, men and women both have different sex hormones and we want these to be, we want to have adequate fat intake. We want to have adequate, adequate cholesterol intake because we need these hormones to function adequately for the rest of our bodies to function. We also need cholesterol and fat for healthy melatonin, for vitamin D, for the absorption of certain vitamins and minerals from our foods. So it is very important that we don't just aim for like the fat-free garbage, that we actually eat good healthy fats. So for me specifically, that looks like butter, beef tallow, olive oil, avocado oil. Um, I actually use avocado oil spray. That does not look like, you know, the quote-unquote heart-healthy <laughs> butters made with seed oils and canola oil and various other garbage and additives. That looks like real whole foods that like our ancestors would have eaten or that existed approximately 100 years ago. So good healthy fats. And don't be afraid of things like avocado. You know, you don't get fat from eating fat. You don't get high cholesterol from eating cholesterol. You actually legitimately need those things, but within balance. So we don't need a super excessive amount. I wouldn't eat the whole entire avocado, for instance. I would eat like maybe a quarter of it with my breakfast. So we're not aiming for like ginormous portions, ginormous amounts of fat and protein. We're aiming for enough that we feel good and satiated with a balanced meal. So I already did talk about stop snacking. So we did talk about that in the beginning of the episode. So that is also part of this food first approach. Now, number two, we're going to go into fiber. Fiber is important, but we don't need it in excess. We don't need a huge, huge, huge amount. I mean, I think I've seen like one recommended dietary intake amount of 25 grams per day for females, which may be excessive for some people, or it may not be enough. I think that this is another matter of getting in tune with what exactly your body needs from you and what foods work best for you at what time in your life, right? So women, you know, we experience things differently than men. Like women, we have a monthly cycle where, you know, our body cycles in and out of like this spring, summer, winter type of thing, whereas like the male cycle is a 24-hour cycle. So we may need different amounts of different amounts of um, nutrients at different points in the month. So just like I said, like getting in tune with what your body needs and what feels good to you. The fiber I'm specifically talking about here is fiber that comes from plants. 
So think like leafy greens, vegetables that you tolerate well, fruit that you tolerate well. Fiber in in a good form does not come from things like Cheerios. And I say that specifically because I absolutely hate how boxes of Cheerios at the store say that high fiber lowers cholesterol. No, it actually doesn't. The garbage ingredients in Cheerios actually gives you high cholesterol, believe it or not. It's crazy as that sounds. It's so true. So ideally, we want to aim for fiber from plants. So if you're into vegetables, if not, I wouldn't worry too much, but I wouldn't supplement with like the fiber that you find in a, or like, you know, those fiber powders at the stores. I don't recommend those for many reasons. And one of them being like the additives in them. I think that it's so much more beneficial for us to get our fiber from plants as able. And that doesn't have to be significant. Like my fiber, my daily fiber intake mostly comes from my one to two servings of fruit per day. It's not much more than that, and I feel like that's perfectly adequate for myself. Okay, so number three, we're going to talk about sleep. Now, sleep is super important in the case of insulin resistance and blood sugars because as soon as we're not sleeping enough, our bodies start spiking cortisol levels, which is essentially our stress hormone. And this cortisol level creates like this fight or flight response where we're almost like, you know, on guard, where we're like, you know, jumping at everything, freaked out. And it also, as a result, creates higher and higher and higher blood sugars, which we do not want. So this excessive cortisol, because our bodies are so stressed from not sleeping, this excessive cortisol is also bumping up blood sugars, even in people who do not have diabetes. So I like to say the average person needs between seven and nine hours of sleep per night. And of course, like there's a million ways that we can promote better sleep. I personally try to have a cup of chamomile tea, calm myself, breathe in and out, deep breath, stretch, hot bath, whatever it is that I need in the moment to help me get my body ready to rest and sleep well. I also use a sleep mask. That really, really, really helps a lot too. (laughs) I highly recommend. So right along with adequate sleep, we also have to watch our stress levels. This is number four, stress. So we also have to be mindful of our stress levels because just like when we're not sleeping enough and we have the spike in cortisol and subsequent spike in blood sugar, the similar things happens with excessive stress. And I know that like the average person probably has a lot of stress in their life. You know, they're probably really busy. They're running themselves ragged from working full time, managing things with the kids, trying to watch their health, trying to exercise, trying to sleep and do all the things. And it just seems like there's not enough hours in the day. So in the case of this excessive levels of stress, what I strongly recommend is considering setting boundaries for your own well-being and your own mental health. I mean, really, like sometimes if you have to stop picking up hours or, you know, picking up excessive work projects, you know, one week out of the month, let yourself sleep, let yourself decompress. I really recommend using your time off at work if possible, taking steps and thinking of ways, you may even have to get creative to help decrease your stress levels in your life so that you can manage your blood sugars better. It's been well studied and well documented that stress and sleep really do affect blood sugars a lot, even in people without diabetes. So that is a couple of ways that we can really like work to manage and improve blood sugars. So sleep and stress, I almost feel like they go together, but that also brings us to number five, which is movement. I think the most important exercise that you can possibly do is one that you enjoy. I really truly believe that, but I've also read quite a few studies about how walking is a great general exercise for really anybody, but especially like if you have higher blood sugars, walking can be very beneficial. 
Aside from walking, I've also really studied the impacts of resistance training on both people with and without diabetes. And even through school, like through my NTP program, I used to like go off in like a lot of like side notes and tangents and like look up articles about things that we learned in the program or read books about things that even though it wasn't required, I found that it was very, very interesting. And overall, what I found was that resistance training, so specifically think of like lifting heavy objects, you know, resistance training, lifting weights, body weight exercises, and even Pilates and yoga to some degree, because a lot of those moves do involve body weight resistance, right? is actually far more beneficial for increasing insulin sensitivity, not only in the moment, but over time. And in a nutshell, the more muscle, the more lean muscle mass we have as a result of insulin, or as a result of resistance training and adequate protein intake, keep in mind, adequate protein intake is incredibly important here, the more our bodies are effectively utilizing the glucose that comes in, and instead of storing it as fat, it's being burned off. So essentially, we're working smarter, not harder. So I like to think of it as work smarter, not harder, because the more lean muscle mass you have, the better your quote-unquote metabolism is going to be when it comes to the glucose intake, when it comes to you know, burning off glucose for fuel. And another thing with that is that with cardio, like you are burning off glucose, you are using up glucose from your cells when you're doing cardio, but only while you're doing it. Whereas resistance training carries this insulin sensitivity, increased insulin sensitivity benefit around the clock. So specifically learning that was just like this huge aha moment. Like, oh my God, this is like the ultimate work smarter, not harder hack. If someone has high blood sugar, they should really be doing some form of resistance training. And it looks like from the articles that I read, it looks like a minimum twice a week, but it looks like four to five times a week is even better if able. Now, being realistic, not everybody is able to hit the gym five days a week, especially if they're busy working a full-time job, tired, busy with kids, all the things. I totally, totally, totally get it. But I really wanted to throw that out there because I thought that research was incredibly interesting. If you're interested in learning more about insulin resistance, prediabetes, diabetes, I read this really interesting book by Dr. Ben Bickman called Why We Get Sick. I highly recommend reading this book if you are even interested in learning a little bit about insulin resistance because he really addresses like the root cause of chronic health and wellness and health and disease type of issues. And as it turns out, insulin resistance is actually the root cause for so many chronic health issues but it's just not addressed as it should be. I feel like if you really want to address insulin resistance, prediabetes and diabetes, and other chronic health conditions, I feel like it's so much more worthwhile to see a functional medicine practitioner or a functional doctor versus a doctor that specializes in Western medicine. And I'm sure that an average like Western medicine trained physician, I mean, they are, I'm sure that they are well-meaning people, of course, and I'm sure that they want the best for you as a patient, but they also don't have the same kind of training because they're not taught to address root cause things. They're taught to essentially band-aid symptoms, right? And I feel like because diabetes can be so impactful upon a person's life, I feel like it's so much more important to get to the root cause by addressing the actual problems here, not just giving medication to lower blood sugar in the hopes that you know nothing will happen as a result, right? 
So you guys, thank you so much for listening to episode six. I would love to know what you think. I would love to know your questions. Let me know um, and keep listening. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you love what you hear, be sure to leave me a review on iTunes so I can keep sending the good stuff your way. I hope you have a wonderful day and can't wait to talk to you next time.